Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cheers with me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob Frantz. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you, my friends. It's nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Tuesday. It's the 26th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. And we've got a very nice show lined up for you, a lot of important things to discuss. Uh, as you know, since it's Tuesday, it's Kersenau Day. Peter Kersenau will be with us coming up at uh, 1010. He is the longest-serving member in the history of the United States Commission on Civil Rights in Washington, D.C. I'm looking forward to uh, Pete today at 1010. And how about Bill O. making his uh, triumphant return? Bill O'Reilly, that would be. Of course, you know, he follows this show each and every day with the O'Reilly Report, and we're going to talk to Bill about his latest book. That'll be coming up at 1110. But to start the show this morning, we're going to talk about a local story that um, is troubling for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And I don't know that I understand it all completely yet, but I do know this. Brooklyn High School's head football coach, a man by the name of Tim McFarland, resigned, apparently under pressure, or maybe he just felt personal pressure. I don't know. Uh, but he resigned uh, yesterday after some incidents apparently happened at the game that they played on Friday night at Beachwood. According to Beachwood Superintendent Robert Hardis, 
in an email to students and families that he learned that uh, late during the first half of the game, and I'm quoting now from the Cleveland.com story on this uh, this particular incident, that some of the Brooklyn players were using the word Nazi to call out plays during the game. Um, as I understand it, they weren't calling anyone Nazis. They were using Nazi as the name of a play call or some element of a play call. The fact that this happened against Beechwood, which, of course, is a uh, overwhelmingly Jewish population in the city of Beechwood of about 14,000 people, um, really, really hit some people hard, hit them the wrong way. What in the world is the word Nazi being used for on a play call? Is it being used exclusively against Beechwood? Uh, was it intended to be a slur? Whatever it was, it led to the resignation of the head football coach and quite a few, well, let's just say not kind, um, and I'm being kind when I say that, attacks on Brooklyn, the school, the students, the board, the parents, the players, and the other assistant coaches on social media. They are all being attacked for this uh, particular story. So we reached out to the leader of uh, Brooklyn City Schools, Superintendent uh, Ted Calaris, who was kind enough to join us to tell us what in the world happened and what's going on and what the reality is about things at his school, in his school district and at his high school. So uh, Superintendent Ted Calaris, thank you for joining us this morning here on AM 1420, The Answer. How are you this morning, sir? Good. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So um, let's try to get some context here, if I can. Um, were were players on the Brooklyn team, were coaches on the Brooklyn team calling people Nazis on uh, Friday night? Yeah. So so no. So so what did what had happened? I, I I was I was made aware of the situation late Friday night. Um, evidently, one of our audible play calls. Um, on the uh, offensive side of the ball um, is termed Nazi. Um, there's a little bit of historical piece with, with that. Coaches had that in his uh, playbook for quite some time. Needless to say, um, you know, our kids, um, you know, something happened during the play, triggered that audible call, and and that's when um, some of the concern came out. And, you know, part of it is, you know, obviously – I think in this day and age, um, there needs to be a little bit of a common sense with, with verbiage and, and things you use, um, especially with our kids. Um, what I will say is... To, to be clear, um, before you continue, yeah. Superintendent Clarence, yeah, sure. uh, um, just to be clear, you said he's had this in the playbook or in the verbiage of the plays for a long time. This wasn't something that was created because they were playing Beachwood. Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 okay. absolutely not. That, that's yeah, no, was, I know. Was that conveyed? Was that conveyed to the to the uh, Beechwood folks who were concerned and your counterpart? Yeah, so, yeah. So what happened is so the it was brought to the attention of of the coaches during during I think it was mid second quarter, Bob, to be specific. And coaches got together. Both head coaches got together with um, with officials. Brought to my coaches' attention that it was you know kids were not taking it was not it was not sitting well with people. My coach apologized immediately um, and immediately stopped it. They 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 changed the term and uh, kind of moved on from there. You know, um, I, I I had a great conversation how, how, with. How, how were the officials made aware um, at, uh, at mid second quarter? I mean, what 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 happened? Like was that yeah yeah? I'm not I'm not really privy in terms of how how the officials were made aware. My, my guess would be, and again, this is a guess, is that you know, someone from the 
the Beachwood sideline had had notified the officials, um, and they got together and, and again had the huddle and had the conversation. So when you say officials, you mean the game officials, the Correct. refs. Okay, I, yeah, I, was, was, I wasn't yeah. sure if you meant the game officials or school officials were informed about it. No, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the, okay. the, the, the actual umpires and the referees for the game. Got it. Okay, so I apologize for the interruption. So um, uh, t- take us take us a little bit further into this now. So your coach apologized right on the spot, changed the, the verbiage to something else to, to, to make that call, uh, and then what happened? Well, and, and they finished the game. And without any further incident? Uh, not yeah. As far as I'm aware, the we we finished the game. Um, second half became a running clock, um, uh-huh. and and everything ended um, fine. I guess uh, coaches had a conversation at the end of the game. Um, again, this is you know per both coaches when I had conversations, um, uh-huh. everything was fine. Kids shook hands. Uh, you know, our school officials, both Beachwood and Brooklyn school officials, were on the field to make sure there was. You know, no extracurricular activities on the on the handshake, but but mm-hmm. the game ended with the end game and the game ended as well as it could be. Okay, so uh, the incident happens. It is reported. Apologies are made. Verbiage is changed. When did this um, elevate beyond football and into superintendent offices like yours and Mr. Hardis's? Well, uh, Superintendent Hardis and I talked on um, talked on Saturday. You know, going back a little bit, I want I want you know. I, I spoke with both the athletic director from Beachwood and the head coach from Beachwood on Saturday morning and, and conveyed my sincere apology um, of what happened. Um, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate uh, that it happened. It's unfortunate that the term was used. Um, you know, my conversation with my head coach that day um, really re- revolved around um there has to be a lot more common sense um, with our kids. Um, but, but again, going back, had a conversation with Superintendent Hardis. We were we had a good cordial conversation and um, notified me that at some point he would be notifying his families and you know, kind of go from there. And I, you know, and I, I, I understand he's got to do what's best for his community, um, as, as do I. And you know. And it, Bottom line is, it doesn't take away the the regardless of the intent of of what had happened. It it doesn't take away that. Uh, Let, know, let's talk about work. intent, Superintendent uh, Claris. Let's talk about intent. Um, it, 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 to to people who have no idea what's going on, and I'm kind of among them right now. You hear, well, the players were using. Uh, a term that the coaches had put in place as an audible call. I think you're calling it, and using the word yep. Nazi. In in what context? Do, do you do you know that, or is that something that only the coaches can explain? Or because uh, if people who don't know anything is going on, they just hear kids are in yeah, the middle so, of a game yelling Nazi. What the heck is that all about? Uh, so, and they're going to so, assume the worst. So is it the worst? What is the context? Yeah. So it was so so at one at one point, one of their defensive players was was showing a blitz, mm-hmm. and then that's the audible call for our offensive players to assist to have an extra blocker in the backfield. I would assume. I, don't quote me on that specifically, but some some context like that. Okay, and 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 this is to clarify again. You this has been in place for a number. Of, how long has Coach McFarland been the coach, or had he been the coach? So, yeah. So, Coach has been with us for for three years. He's been a coach for twenty five plus years. Uh, but to to just to for the record, you know, this is the first time myself, our athletic director, were made aware. Um, 
of this incident, of the use of this term. Okay. And being made aware of this, um, did you, uh, obviously you had a conversation with your coach. Did did you have to pressure him to resign? Did you, What was your reaction? Let me let me ask this question much more generically. You hear about it. You find out about it. Uh, you talk yeah. to the superintendent from uh, from uh, Beachwood, and now you got to look at your own program, your own coach, your own school. What was, your, yeah. what, what, what was your first reaction when you found out that this went down and that the word Nazi was in the play calls? You know, I, I guess my first my first reaction as a as a you know, 25 year veteran uh, teacher, educator, and administrator, is that uh, you know this was a self inflicted wound, so to speak, and that that we have to have a lot more common sense in in the things we use with our students. Um, make no mistake, Tim McFarland is a a good man. He's he's done nothing but um, benefit our kids. And and I will tell you, Bob, this is a this is a, a big loss for us in our football community, in our school community, because Tim's a good man. He does good things for kids. Um, however, uh, you know, my first reaction was, wow, we 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 made a big mistake. Now, I don't believe the intent was anything specific to any Beachwood player, Beachwood community. I conveyed that message to the superintendent. I apologized to the superintendent, and 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 Bob took me at my word. Like there was no, we had a good conversation. There was no ill will between us. But my my first reaction was, wow, that was stupid, and and we should know better. We're talking with the superintendent of uh, Beachwood Schools, Ted, Cal- or excuse me, Brooklyn Schools, Ted Calaris. Uh, the incident happened uh, on Friday night with Brooklyn against Beachwood, which is kind of what makes this story stand out a little bit more, given Beachwood's uh, very uh, uh, overwhelming uh, Jewish population in that city, and of course reflected in that school. What was your first conversation with uh, Coach McFarland? What did you first say to him when uh, when all of this went down, or after after you became aware? No, I'm a I'm a firm believer of allowing. Uh, people to tell their story, tell what happened and from their perspective. And, um, you know, Tim conveyed to me exactly what I just conveyed to you. You know, it's, it's, it's been part of their uh, play calling for a while. And, and I'll be honest with you, he was absolutely appalled and upset and, and just remorseful for what has happened. Um, but he conveyed to me that there was, was no specific intent behind it. And, and again, his track record and me knowing the man, I have no reason not to believe that. Um, Mr. Calaris, I, I'm looking at social media, and um, it is relentless. Um, the fact that Coach McFarland resigned is not enough for many. Uh, they want more. They want, figuratively speaking, they want blood. Uh, they want yeah. the football program to be canceled for the rest of the season. They want kids to be suspended uh, if they use that term, even though they were doing so at the coach's direction. They want uh, you know the athletic department to pay a price and so forth. They're basically yeah. trying to make it appear as though this is some sort of systemic uh, racism or anti-Semitism or something that is running through Brooklyn schools. I know some people at Brooklyn schools. I know some people, as a matter of fact, on the board. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. Can you can you tell me how you are reacting and how the Brooklyn community is reacting to the uh, the online attacks uh, on your entire district over this? Yeah. 
Well, I will tell you, over, over the weekend, we, we've received some pretty nasty voicemails. We've received some pretty nasty emails. Um, social media obviously has, has left a bad taste in my mouth regarding um, people's comments. And, you know, I, I guess a couple things, you know, society today is very quick to judge when, when they don't have all the information. Um, here's what I will tell you about, about the, the community of Brooklyn. This is the most amazing place to live, to be a student. The families are amazing, and I couldn't be more proud of my kids. Um, yesterday, when, we, when, when Coach um, announced his resignation to the kids, um, he did so for the purpose of recognizing that he made a mistake, recognizing that it's tough to recover from this mistake, but also recognizing that he needed to move on so that we could move on and we can grow. I, I will tell you this. There will be no students punished as a result of this. There, We will not be shutting down our football program. We are having homecoming this week. We will, we will celebrate our homecoming. Obviously, this is a big impact for us. But, you know, part of my job as superintendent is, is to help our kids grow. And, and I'll be honest with you, Bob, you know, we, we had the conversation with our kids um, yesterday afternoon right around 3, 3.30. And I, I will tell you, my, my athletic director did an amazing job of, of communicating what was happening. One of, one of the important questions that he asked our kids is did our kids even understand what that term really referenced? I mean, most of them knew, okay, it was referenced to, to, to World War II and what happened during, during World War II. But, but a lot of them didn't understand the kind of the background and the gravity of, of what that really meant and, and what destruction you know, that, that word and devastation that word is associated with. You know, so reflecting, okay, we got to do a better job of, of making our kids understand the world they live in and the world where they came from. And, and so, you know, going back to your original point, there have been a lot of nastiness uh, coming towards us. Please do not do that to my kids. If, you're, if anybody's going to be upset, let them be upset at me. I'm the superintendent. I take responsibility for everything that happens in this school district. That being said, the only way we're going to grow as a school district is if we, we understand what happened, we correct it, but I also need to educate, um, educate our kids. You know, and I think what's also lost in this whole thing, and this is one of my messages I had to my families yesterday, you know, we have Beachwood students that have been impacted by this. Everybody's focusing on the adults in this situation, and the adults should happen to this person. You know what? We have kids from both sides of the ball, Brooklyn kids and Beachwood kids, that have been impacted by this. And, and, and part of my job is to help our students understand the perspective of, of the Beachwood kids. The Beachwood kids did nothing wrong here. The Brooklyn kids did nothing wrong here. This is an adult problem. We will fix the adult problem. Coach, Coach McFarlane was absolutely remorseful, but, but he offered his resignation as, as a way for 
us to move on as a school community and a program because his his number one his number one concern that that he said to me in our my conversation with him on Saturday and then my subsequent conversation with him on Monday morning was that he absolutely is feels terrible for the kids from both Beachwood and Brooklyn and for just the the attacks that have been laid upon our communities and he recognized that the only way for for us to move on as a school community is for him to walk away as head coach. That being said, I am not going to 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 let this impact our kids additionally. We have kid we have we have parent volunteers, we have booster clubs, we have the marching band, we have our our hurricanes, our flag girls. We have everybody associated with Friday Night Football. You know, Friday Night Football is supposed to be a time for celebration, celebrating school culture and friendly competition. Yes, and I think, I think, I think where where the adults have missed the mark here is 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 the attack piece. Right. Like calling my athletic director anti-Semitic is absolutely uncalled for. Absolutely uncalled for. Do you feel right. that most of the do you feel like that most of the aggression that is coming in response to this toward your program and your athletic director you just pointed out and your students and so forth is coming from Beachwood or from just onlookers uh, no, who I, like I, to agitate? I, I, yeah, I don't know. Listen, I'm not going. No, I would never say it's no. Beachwood is. I've received some some very positive emails from Beachwood families, Beachwood parents. So and, 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 I, and you think things have been made right with the Beachwood leadership between yourself and the Beachwood eight or uh, uh, superintendent, I, uh, Mr. Carter, yeah. and, 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 and the coaches and everyone else is um, everybody appears to be good with your response to this. I'll be honest with you, Bob. I haven't I haven't spoke to them regarding regarding my response. You know, on, on Saturday when I spoke to the A.D. superintendent and and head coach. Um, you know, my, my comment was, okay, we're going to investigate this and we'll, we, we will, we will address it as we see fit. I, and I, and I don't. So the communication um, between yourself and Beachwood leaders are, is ongoing. Absolutely. And, and part of, okay. and I'll be honest with you, part of, I think the, the growth piece here is that at some point my, my Brooklyn kids and, and Beachwood kids need to sit together because I want my, I, you know, I got an email from a parent yesterday saying that, his his great grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and 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 what had happened on Friday had had a profound impact on his son, who was on the football team. But it was a good, cordial, co- positive conversation. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't up. He he just wanted us to recognize the impact, and I think that's what gets gets lost here. What gets lost is what is the what is the impact in on the kids of both Beachwood and Brooklyn, right? We the coach is gone, coach has resigned. We've removed him from from the situation. He and I'm going to be honest with you. I don't condone what he did. I, I believe it it was an absolute silly mistake to make. 
Yeah, and, well, I, and, I concur, and, and, yeah. and it is an unforced error. I think, uh, you know, you phrased it that way earlier on, and it is. Um, you know, I, I would doubt very seriously in 2023 that any coach would, would put something like that in and do something like that with the intent to offend and with the intent to be anti-Semitic in any way, shape, or form. I do think there is a lack of education and understanding, even among some of the adults, including coach, about what the history of that word means and what it is and uh, and why it, you know, why it never should have been used in the first place but that does not mean he was intending to offend or cause harm to anybody but i think the outcome is the right outcome he's not the coach anymore you guys need to educate your you know yourselves and your staff and so forth and uh, communicate with the beachwood folks i think it's a great idea to get those kids together as well uh because a lot of learning needs to be done here and uh superintendent claris the last thing because we're out of time here is i completely agree with you this isn't a kid problem it's an adult problem adults made the made the decision to use the wrong word in a in a play call kids just simply followed orders and did their thing and didn't pay paid a lot of attention to what it even meant uh that's not their fault it's not the beachwood kids fault it's uh it's an adult situation and hopefully there will be an adult uh resolution to all of this in which everybody comes out of it a little smarter a little bit more aware of uh of the way things can be perceived and i think hope i hope that's what happens with both schools uh so superintendent ted calaris uh brooklyn uh uh, city schools thank you so much for coming on i wish you and uh your community and the beachwood kids and their community all the very best thank you so much i i really appreciate the time thanks a lot bob you got it my my pleasure it's uh 9 32 we're a little late we'll catch up and come right Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 939, um, I, I feel badly for everybody involved in that, in that story. And I mean everybody, including the offending coach. Because I think I know where his, uh, his you know, play call came from. It was stupid. It was ill-advised. But if you know, this is a guy, by the way, who had been a coach for I think what did what did uh, the superintendent say twenty twenty some years? It's been it's his uh, third or fourth year at uh, at Brooklyn. But he was, according to Cleveland.com, he was praised last year, um, recognized as a program honoree at the annual Ohio High School Co- Football Coaches Association Clinic in February. Uh, he was praised as being an excellent coach and role model at the dis- or by the district. Um, the guy's not, this isn't his, you know, first time around. He's been a coach for a very, very long time. And it sounds to me like he was probably using a very, very old term that he started using a long time ago before, uh, you know, the, the hypersensitivity of things like this began to really take root. But I think I know where it came from. For those who don't know football, uh, let me tell you what a blitz is. The word blitz comes from the word blitzkrieg. A German word meaning a very short, brief assault, military assault. Um, that's what a blitz is. In, in other words, rather than a long, protracted, you know, ground war, they use massive amounts of artillery and and air power and so forth to to do quick uh, bursts of attacks. That's what a blitzkrieg is. It's a German word. Well, in football, they shorten blitzkrieg to blitz. And so this coach probably looked at this and said, "There's a blitz. How are we going to? What term are we going to use on the offense to pick up the blitz? The blitzing linebacker. They use Nazi. Stupid, stupid, stupid. But I don't think it was intended to be anti-Semitic. It was just intended to equate something with something else. 
So I feel bad for everybody here. I especially feel bad for the Beechwood kids and the Beechwood community that has no idea uh, that it was something as, as benign as that and just knows that their kids heard a word that they don't ever need to hear, or at least outside the context of teaching the history of the Holocaust and teaching the history of the Third Reich, teaching the history of the Nazi Party. Uh, teaching them that, of course, is why they would be so sensitive to somebody using that term so loosely, carelessly, haphazardly, and maybe even directed, as far as they knew, at them. All they know is they're lining up on a football play, and somebody on the offense is is pointing and yelling, Nazi, Nazi, meaning, you know, here comes the Blitz, here comes the Blitzkrieg, the German Blitzkrieg. And uh, the kids are probably like, what did he just call me? And so I feel terrible for them. I feel terrible for the Brooklyn staff. I'm sorry, the Beechwood staff. I feel terrible for the Beechwood parents who are probably, I feel terrible for the Beechwood and the overall greater Cleveland Jewish community that has has got to be freaking out by this. Um, It's an awful, awful situation. But having said that, in my opinion, the right remedy has has, has, has been carried out here or has been taken. The remedy is that that head coach, who had been using that word for years as a part of his play calling for the purposes that I just described, is gone. He resigned, which is exactly what had to happen. He resigned. I don't believe there should be any leftover hatred or blame passed on to the other people in the school. That I, That's what I, I mean. I, I don't think, I think what the superintendent Kolaris just said is true. People sending hate mail and saying hateful things and leaving hateful voicemails to the athletic director saying he's an anti-Semitic Nazi is just wrong. That's as wrong as it gets. The reaction sometimes can be worse than the action, especially if it's done absent context. I don't believe that the athletic director at Brooklyn... I don't think that any of the players who just you know knew that they were calling the blitz pickup, <laughs> they didn't have any idea the kind of impact it might it might it might have. And had it not been against Beachwood, you know, and again they use this against a whole bunch of other teams, um, you know, it probably never even would have been brought up. But it was brought up, and it was the wrong thing to do, and the right outcome took place here. The coach has been has been well not terminated, but he has uh, resigned probably would have been terminated otherwise because they had to because they had to there's just no way to, no way to no way to defend it but there is context that can be applied to it if you have thoughts on it i'd love to hear from you 2169010945 and 888281110 but yeah a blitzkrieg is a german word it's a german fighting tactic it's a war tactic and it is um, it made its way to american football by way of the blitz and that's when you bring in a very short bursted attack a linebacker or two or a safety coming off the edge uh, adding to the pass rush and blitzing into the backfield it's just a, it's a term and then I will say this, too. I remember throughout my playing days and my coaching days, too. There were a lot of terms that were used that were just silly and goofy because they needed to be easy to remember. You know, uh, football is a very complex game. Offensive signals and defensive signals and communications between one another, very complex. And so, you know, like I said, terms that are used to me that are easy to remember, uh, you know, for whatever reason are used. And this guy picked the wrong one, the worst one. Well... I can think of a worse one, 
but one of the worst ones that you could even possibly use. But I think the outcome is is the right outcome. The coach is gone. Uh, everybody needs to move on from that. Uh, and hopefully there will be, a, like a, the superintendent said, some sort of a sit-down, some sort of a collaboration or communication or something with uh, Brooklyn players and Beachwood players to say, hey, man, we're all the same. We, we were just making, a, we were just making a, a line call to pick up a blitz. It had nothing to do with anything about who you are or who we are. I mean, let's just all, let's all make some sense out of all of this. Reason should take hold here. Uh, I welcome your thoughts. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I'm going to go to uh, Michael who's calling us from Cleveland. Up first, Michael, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Go right ahead. Hey, I saw Doug Sattel, two keys. Email. All right, bye, Michael. Goodbye. Don't don't call this radio show anymore. Nobody wants to hear your promotion of your goofy little uh, website. I hear that far too often, and I'm tired of being, uh, uh, like I said, trolled, if you will, by, by people with agendas. What I want to talk about is football from the standpoint. It's not even football. It is, but it isn't. It is, but it isn't. What I want to talk about here is is whether or not the schools did the right thing, or the school, in this case the Brooklyn School District, did the right thing, and is it enough? Is it enough to put it put it to bed, or do you think more needs to happen? That's what I want to know. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. I'm going to take a time out here. We're going to come back. Uh, if you want to talk about that, we will. But I also have something else to follow up from yesterday's show in the third hour that you may have missed. I've got that coming up, and it has to do with the strike, the strike that is going to impact the entire American economy if it doesn't end somewhat soon. I'll tell you more about that coming up. Always right, ready. So it has been made, uh, or brought to my attention, rather, that I forgot the pledge. So I want to make uh, good on that. My apologies. Whenever we have a guest in the first segment of the program, which isn't often, we always try to leave that open for the monologue segment, but um, it kind of throws us off kilter a little bit, and sometimes I forget to start our show with the pledge. So, Patriots, if you would, please, if you are uh, near a flag, face it and stand and put your hand on your heart and join us. If you are a believer in, well, Marxism, leftism, and the modern Democratic Party, you probably don't have any faith in that flag or what it represents. So you may instead take a knee next to that socialist quarterback over there for those of us who care i pledge allegiance to the flag of the united states of america and to the republic for which it stands one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice for all all right so yesterday on yes on yesterday's program in the third hour um I had an interview with a UAW local president, um, and he was very, very gracious of him to come on. Uh, what we talked about was going to be difficult because I am not supportive of what the union is doing here. I'm not supportive of holding the American economy hostage for what I consider to be outrageous demands like 46% increase in salary and 32-hour work weeks for 40-hour pay. But I wanted to hear from them what some of their arguments were. Now, he's not at the negotiating tables in Detroit or anywhere else. He's just a local union president, but he is, as the local union president, privy to what the uh, things are being asked for. So I want you to hear part of this interview um, because I'm going to be asking you to respond to it a little bit later on. I've got Kirsten all coming up after the top of the hour, but but this kind of matters. So I want you to listen to uh, part of what we uh, what we covered yesterday and tell me where you stand on the battle between UAW workers and the big three uh, automakers. 
The GM spokesperson said they have made quote historic wage increase offers and a huge economic passage that they uh, package that they have put on the table here. But there's that 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 your side is saying it's not enough. But they're saying they're absolutely willing to make you guys whole uh, in order to yeah. get this transition going. But you say it's not enough. So exactly exactly where you know when you start at something crazy like forty six percent, and I think it is crazy. And when you start at pay us for forty, but we're only working thirty two, I can't even imagine what kind of a cost that's going to put on the company. That's going to be passed on to the consumers on the car lots. Um, exactly how far are you? You know, I know you're not the chief negotiator, but but exactly how how much more reasonable do you think you're going to have to be before we get there? Yeah, again, that was the starting point. You know, I, I'm like you said, I'm not sitting up there at the table. I know, all right? So I, I, I don't. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it it was a starting point for sure, um, and it was. I would say it would be inflated, but you know what? It is what it is. You know what? These, Mary Barra, I'll use her for example, $29.7 million a year before bonuses. Okay. And, and she, she says she gets paid on, uh, her conversation is, uh, performance based. Well, I have to perform my job so that that factory is running the way it's supposed to run so we are profitable. We deserve the same compensation as well. Here, not yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but but Dan, but Dan, I don't know. I don't know if that's fair to say. I don't think. In fact, I don't think it is fair to say because what you do, what you hold on, but 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 what you do, what you're responsible for in your part of that plan, your particular you know participation. I don't even know what your job is within it, but but it's very very different. The CEO whose performance affects how many millions of shareholders in the companies, and and not to mention all of the pensions of the retirees and your pensions as 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 time goes goes on and you guys put all this time in as well if their performance at the top level of things is is not up to par the whole company collapses um you guys are responsible for a very different part of this whole thing which is the actual production thereof you you do understand that also it takes an awful lot more to to achieve a position like a ceo than it does to be a foreman on a line right doesn't mean one is well, doesn't mean doesn't mean one better. is working harder than the other, but I mean in terms of you know people people do an awful lot to get those positions, uh, and 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 typically when you are responsible for the outcome and the in the income rather of multi billion dollar companies, you are certainly going to find yourself in a position to profit a lot more than somebody who's responsible for just for making their quota that day on a line. Uh, yeah. Is that not fair to say? Or? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't agree here, and I think we're going to agree to disagree to this. Listen, forty-six percent—it's—it's an inflated app, and we understood that. We're st- that's where we're starting our our, our negotiations at, and those were our demands. Now, where we end up, I don't know. You know, that has to come back to the membership and get voted on. But if you look at a current wage we have right now, okay. And, and you, you, you get the gross wages and you add everything up at the end of the day with the way things are inflating and, and some of that, you, you hardly have anything to put away, especially when you're making half of what I make. If we were to increase our wages 36%, I think, I think what I, what did I see? It was like a $350 a month, uh, 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 that's what you probably have left over after you have a house payment, car payment, utilities, food, and if you're paying for your health care, you can't. 
it's, and that's if your kids don't go to dance, don't play football, don't play baseball, aren't your hot water tank doesn't doesn't go out. Dan, on you're you. making it sound like you guys are working for slave wages, and I don't buy that you are. What's no, the average? What's the average starting wage? What's the average starting wage right now for a UAW plant worker in any one of the big three? What's the average starting wage right now? A starting wage yeah. is sixteen sixty-five. If you get hired right now, okay. So you get hired in at sixteen sixty-five, and exactly how that's how long what, how long do you have to work hiring. before? The, yeah, go ahead. That's uh, okay, hiring or temporary, that, and that's what they're hiring right now. Sixteen sixty-five. Okay, so now. those are those are temporary starting people. Now, what's the average wage though for the average uh, uh, employee? Thirty-two bucks an hour. Thirty-two, 32 bucks an hour. An hour. Okay, thirty. Yeah. I don't know a lot of people to be honest with you. They make thirty-two dollars an hour. Um, and, and and now is that as much as the CEOs make in the at the head of the big three? No, of course not. But you're not suggesting that it should be, should it? Because again, what they're doing is they're responsible for the success or failure of multi-billion dollar uh, multi-billion dollar companies and 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 all of your jobs. So I'm going to stop it there because uh, we're, we've got coming up on the top of the hour. We got Chris and I'll come in, but I want your reaction to some of the things you're hearing. I I, I don't buy that you can't live on sixty six thousand five hundred and twenty dollars a year. That's the average uh, uh, wage. That's before one nickel of overtime. And you know these plants give lots of overtime opportunities where it's time and a half. And what's 32 and 16? That's 48 by where I do math, how I do math. That's $48 an hour for overtime wages. I don't know any UAW worker that is struggling. I don't know any UAW worker that isn't doing better than most people who don't have uh, you know, those jobs. Those are very, very well-paying jobs. And for him to act like we're not going to be able to feed our family unless we don't get a 46% increase in salary is disingenuous, dishonest, and dare I say, flat-out greedy. And I said that to him later in the conversation. I'll have more of that for you later. We'll take a time out now for news. we got Curse and I'll coming up. Stay here on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Yes, it is. Hour number two underway now, seven minutes past 10 o'clock on this Tuesday, the 26th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023, and you know what that means. If it's a Tuesday, it must be Kersenau Day. So let's welcome to the program a man who is the longest-serving commissioner, uh, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He is an attorney, a best-selling author. He is a columnist. He is a law professor. He's the host of the Kersenau Report. We always affectionately refer to him as P.K. L K K Cool J Peter Kersenow, welcome. How are you, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. For uh, I don't know if you had. Uh, I don't know how many people got that joke. L L Cool J with uh, with uh, your your audience, but uh, the president clearly needed a tutorial on that. 
Yeah, he did. It was uh, it was it was pretty hilarious. You know, he, st- he first of all the before that he spoke to the uh, some congressional Hisp- or not congressional but some Hispanic caucus. I don't know if it was actually the congressional Hispanic caucus, but a, a Hispanic group and was uh, and then praised them for their great work as the congressional black caucus. Then he actually great. speaks before the congressional black caucus has LL Cool J there and has no earthly idea who the guy is and could not figure out what his name was and then and then proceeded uh, after calling him LLJ Cool J uh, then pr- proceeded to call him what he calls most black males boy uh, said that boy's got and then he corrected and it said man's got biceps bigger than my than my thighs I mean uh, Pete it yeah. just never ends does it well it doesn't and you know the we all know that he's an idiot and that he's mentally deficient in, in going down fast. Uh, but this is not, um, I think, attributable necessarily to that, because he's had a number of gaps over the course of his career that uh, all seem to go in one direction, and any one of those gaps would have been terminal had a Republican said something even remotely similar. Uh, you know, he called Cool J a boy, of course. Remember his uh, corn pop stories? Then he didn't want his kids going to a racial jungle. And then he says, you know, uh, the Republicans are going to put you all in chains. Then he says, if you don't vote for me, uh, you ain't black. You know, you go on and on and on with this guy. It has a fixation. And as I said, almost any single one of those would have put somebody in serious jeopardy of continued viability in uh, the political process. But this guy is a serial offender. And, uh, you know, of course, the media gives him a pass. So um, over you know, and over and over say? again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, and, and, you know, here's here. Well, just for the sake of educating our audience on this. Two of the great artists of our time representing the groundbreaking legacy of hip hop in America. LLJ Cool J. Uh, <laughs> by the way, that boy's got he got man's got biceps bigger than my thighs. I think I don't know about you, but I just thought I heard a guy saying he'd make a great field hand. Boy, look how big his muscles are. That boy. Well, you know, he caught himself. He knew that, and, you know, that would have been, that's the, kind of his subconscious thinks like that, but then he caught himself politically and knew that he can't say something like that. Again, if a Republican had said something like that, it would have been in the news for several, elect- for several uh, news cycles and may have been the end of that guy, not necessarily the end of his career, they wouldn't have kicked him out of office, but he's not going any further, he would not be a viable candidate. And this guy's going to be ostensibly... This is what they tell us. I'm, you know, skeptical, but they tell us he's going to be running for uh, president again. Uh, There's a reason, and this isn't the reason, but there are reasons why he's hemorrhaging support among black and Hispanic voters. There you go. That's where I I I wanted to go. I've got numbers, Pete, if uh, if you want to hear them. I want people to know exactly how bad that hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging is. A new NBC poll released on Saturday found that the president's job approval rating had slipped from 80% in 2021 to 63% among black voters. First of all, how it was 80 is anybody's guess. They're just not paying attention at all. But but it, it dropped 17 points, which it, that doesn't mean that he would get 17% fewer votes if the election were held tomorrow, particularly if it's against Trump because of the way they continue to demonize Trump. But the reality is, Pete, that that's a massive, massive drop in, in under two years. It is, and I think what it pretends is that... Um, there's going to be a lack of voter enthusiasm in the black and, let's face it, almost every community. But he has to get, you know, Kirsten rule, you got to get 88% if you're a Democrat in a national election of the black vote. Otherwise, you know, you, don't, you can't even get out of the starting blocks. So um, 
that's that's the floor. And Biden is at risk of having very low voter turnout among blacks and Hispanics, whites actually, but mainly among blacks. If he cannot retain more than 90 percent of black females, especially, he's in bad shape. I saw one poll that showed that his approval rating among black males was in the 60s, not in the 80s or not in the 90s, in the 60s. It's very, very dangerous for any Democrat to be in. But, you know, look, aside from the race aspect of it, somebody name me one area in which a Biden policy has improved the United States of America or the lot of any given subgroup of Americans. You can't find one, but you can find a host of policies that, has done, that is, have done palpable damage to Americans in terms of income, affo- housing affordability, uh, you name it, goes on and on and on and on. Not to mention right now the immigration debacle at the border and that by itself. We've had two hearings at the Civil Rights Commission, big ones, with huge numbers of witnesses dealing with the effect of illegal immigration on black employment, specifically black males. I've testified before Congress numerous times on this. The data is overwhelming that black males up to a million jobs have been lost by black males who compete in the same markets with illegal aliens, many of whom are preferred by employers for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, illegal immigrants don't complain to the EELC or OSHA or the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. Uh, But my goodness, um, the policies of this administration are devastating to all Americans, but they're particularly devastating to black Americans. Yeah, they are. And here's uh, here's a follow up to that, Pete. He Biden said, I don't know if it was yesterday or Sunday, but uh, speaking of the looming shutdown, if they don't get something done or pass a CR by October 1st, he decided to play the race card again there as well, declaring that if there is a government shutdown, it will disproportionately impact black families, trying to appeal to the black families and saying the Republicans are the ones doing this to you. They're the ones who won't pass the appropriations bills. They're the ones who won't uh, cooperate with us and so forth. And black families, it's going to impact you. And then, of course, he pointed to what? It's election season. So what? Of welfare, of course. He talked about SNAP. He talked about how all of the programs that black people rely upon in order to be able to survive in this systemically racist country, they're going to be taken away from you if we have a government shutdown. So, in other words, black Americans, make sure you rise up against Republicans and support me because I'm the only one who will continue to get your EBT cards or anything else that uh, we need to provide you in in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, subsidies and so forth so that you can survive in a racist nation. Right, and that's precisely how many Democrats, but particularly Biden, approach these things all the time. They disappear from the black community when there's work to be done. But once election season, they go to the old tropes like that. You know, uh, Republicans are going to do this, Republicans are going to do that. This is from a man who just signed a measure or implemented an executive order that would grant over nearly a half million work visas of legal aliens. A half million work visas to illegal aliens who are going to be competing against all Americans, but particularly the subset of black Americans, for jobs. That one act has done more damage to black employment prospects than anything he can allege Republicans have ever done. This is stunning. And here's my problem with Republicans. All of these things, you can draw a direct line between a Democratic policy, all you need to do is just show pictures of cities like Detroit and the south side of Chicago and Newark and all these other places, Democratic strongholds for decades. And before the Democrats took over, 
Detroit, for example, was either the richest or one of the richest cities in the entire world. But we've got 70 straight uninterrupted years of democratic rule. Now take a look at it and compare it, for example, to what Hiroshima looked like right after uh, they dropped the bomb. In some ways, it's indistinguishable. And I don't mean to give short shrift to what happened in short, uh, Hiroshima, but just take a look at the pictures and then ask yourself, just give, them, give the two pictures to anybody randomly and say, hey, which one's Hiroshima and which one's Detroit? And they'd be baffled. They couldn't tell you. This is the result of democratic rule, higher crime, deterioration, jobs moving out. And, um, you know, Biden just goes to the same playbook all the time over and over. But Republicans need to say something about this stuff. Republicans are this has been a hobby horse of mine for 20 years. Republicans need to go in the black community, point these things out specifically, not just the bad things Democrats have done, but the things Republicans have done or are trying to do that actually help all Americans lift all boats. Yeah, the rising tides. That's what our friend uh, Khalid Namar show has called it. Yes, on Sunday, uh, Sunday nights, rising tides lifting all boats. Pete, um, to uh, a point you just made, I may have lost my train of thought now when you said that, and I wanted to promote Khalid. Um, it has completely escaped me now. The second to last thing that you were just talking about, Pete. Um, oh, 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 it was, it was, it was on, it was on. The, I wanted to go to the numbers when you talked about uh, the the uh, illegal aliens and and giving the visa cards to illegal aliens. We just crossed six million um, border encounters. In other words, border crossers who were apprehended and then turned loose into the United States since Joe Biden was inaugurated. Um, and I was talking to Mark Morgan yesterday from Fair and former CBP uh, uh, Customs mm-hmm. and Border uh, uh, Enforcement, uh, and. Um, uh, 1.75 known, 1.75 million known gotaways. That doesn't count the unknown gotaways. Those are the ones that they are aware of. So now we're talking about seven and a half million people, roughly, who have crossed into this into this country since Joe Biden took office, since he was inaugurated. My question to you is, and I'm, this ties to what you just said about Democrat leadership in cities like Detroit that have been destroyed. Is there a Rubicon? Is there a is there a number? Um, a, a critical mass that has to be reached in New York, in Chicago, in L.A., in Philadelphia, in these deep blue cities that call themselves sanctuary that are being overrun by these people, uh, these 7 million-plus people who have come into this country, the way they have been overrunning Texas and Arizona and border communities for, for years and years and years. But now that it is getting to the big cities and they're all screaming, we have no more room, we have no more resources, we have no more money, is there any critical mass that would be reached before those cities would say, we need to elect new people, to the point where the people in those cities would say, we have to stop voting for Democrats. They're the ones who are making this happen. It appears, at least based on anecdotal evidence, that we're getting very close to that in Chicago and maybe even in New York, because you've heard a lot of rumblings from rank-and-file people, um, a lot of blacks in Chicago, for example, who are disgusted with the fact that they've imported tens of thousands of illegal immigrants, call themselves a sanctuary city, put up these tent cities in their neighborhoods that the schools are being overwhelmed by illegal alien children who uh, are draining resources from a school district that uh, you know mishandles its resources all the time. Similar things are happening in New York. Strangely enough, the vaunted democratic discipline, you've got to give them credit. I mean, they may screw up cities, screw up 
screw up countries, but they have uniform lockstep discipline, never say a discouraging word about a fellow Democrat. But that uh, that dike is, is breaking, and you mm-hmm. hear it and see it in reports all the time. Now, will that cause uh, constituents to vote for somebody else? Well, unfortunately, Bob, as you know, in most big cities, you won't even find a Republican candidate even running. You can't find one. There isn't the, the challenger is another Democrat or maybe somebody from other, you know, some rump party. But it's very difficult to find a Republican who runs in any of these urban areas. So that's a legacy of unchallenged Democratic rule or unbroken Democratic rule for decades. Now, Republicans just give up. And my message has been for a long time, do not give up. There is a an opportunity here understood that it is difficult or has been difficult but that difficulty is waning considerably because people have eyes they see what's going on they see the depredation that's been wrought by unbroken democratic policies and illegal immigration is going to be the death of some cities some cities are going to spiral out of control or if not uh, the death it's going to be the ruination of cities and you're seeing it in many many of the major cities uh, from anything from skyrocketing unemployment crime rates just the overall squalor of tent cities and the burden that's being placed on the educational system is untenable and in chicago especially parents are outraged by black parents there have been marches there have been demonstrations but you know uh, the democratic party they they will take your vote but in terms of whether or not they're going to deliver for you it's a whole nother matter yeah, no question about it. Pete, we'll take a time out here, and I'm going to come back and dovetail off of what you were just talking about as far as the illegal alien population draining the resources of the local schools. You mentioned mentioned in Chicago, but we're going to talk about the plight of schools. We'll talk about another big American city school district failing miserably, and we'll talk about the reasons why. And, uh, you know, we can probably bring it close to home in Cleveland as well. We'll continue with Curse and I right after this. All right, let's continue now with Peter Kersenow. Pete just was talking about the impact of illegal immigration on schools and uh, how uh, kids in uh, particularly urban schools and urban centers are losing out even more so because of the existence of, of uh, well, literally millions, but in each district, not that many, uh, of illegals uh, coming in and soaking up the resources. Pete, you have been following the plight of Baltimore public schools for some time now, and things have gone from bad to worse there. Just as an example, tell us about that. That's what's really remarkable. It's gone from bad to worse. It, it it was a challenge to go to worse. It was very difficult to get any worse than it already been. And you're right. Over the last few years, you and I have talked about Baltimore City Schools as kind of a totem, as kind of an emblem of what's going on in urban districts across the country. Some are a little bit better than others, but there's been a real decline in the quality of education nationwide, but particularly in urban centers, if you want to even call it education. In Baltimore, many of your readers may have, uh, or listeners may have read that um, a report just came out in Baltimore that in 13 schools in Baltimore, not a single student, not one, passed the state math exam. Not one. And 75%, actually 74.5% of students got the lowest possible score that one could get on the test stunning that almost seems impossible it's like you'd have to be trying to fail right 
Right. It's, it's not just that you a failure of education. It's a miseducation on steroids. It's almost as if you're giving students the wrong education to get bad numbers. It's, putting your name on the exam usually gets you more points than that. But this is how horrible the educational system is in Baltimore, despite the fact people keep talking about the fact that, well, we need to fund our schools. Really? I don't disagree that schools need to be adequately funded, but in Baltimore alone, they received $2.5 billion with a B in funding last year. Billion in funding last year. The superintendent got paid nearly a half a million dollars a year for those abysmal scores. You can't continue to reward, at least so profitably, this level of failure and incompetence, but they're doing it all the time. But, but going back to the, what's most important is we're graduating another generation of kids who will not be able to compete in the United States of America worldwide under any circumstances whatsoever. They are prime grist for the Democratic mill. That is, uneducated and ignorant, those are votes for Democrats. So Democrats will get their votes and continue to perpetuate this sin of miseducation. This is an abomination. Keep them poor, as we talked about before and needing the government for for subsidized lives and keep them stupid so they don't know any better that they could have better. And, and not just stupid, but you have them for eight hours a day to propagandize them on a whole host of things that either aren't real, are made up, uh, are divisive, are racist. They can't pass once, not one student can pass, and believe me, these exams are not the most difficult. If you've ever seen these, this is not, we're not talking about vector calculus here. We're talking about basic math, and not one student, not one in an entire school, in 13 schools, could pass this exam. Not yeah. one, and yet at the same time, they could tell you how many genders there are, and there's usually 85 <laughs> or 86. No they question. could tell you that global warming causes everything, including uh, Brown's loss. This is incredible stuff, and we're putting Pete, up with this. Pete, we're going to get our bottom of our break here. I want to come back and follow up on this. From Baltimore to Cleveland and beyond, we'll talk more about education or miseducation of our kids, despite all of that money being poured into it, as we continue on Always Right Radio. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, we continue now at 1038 with Peter Kersenow, but Peter's phone dropped out. It seems like it's dropping out on a, on a weekly now. Uh, almost every Tuesday, he's got a bad connection that drops at one point or another, but we'll get him back on while I kind of restate some of the numbers that he was talking about. At 13 of the school district, Baltimore, Maryland, 13 of the district's 32 public high schools, 1,295 of the 1,736 students who took the exam scored a one out of four, meaning they were not even close to proficiency, the lowest that they could get. Called by the deputy director of the Baltimore-based nonprofit People Empowered by the Struggle Movement, um, educational homicide. (laughs) The question is, is it really homicide or is part of it suicide? Is part of it educational suicide? Because I've said this very, very many times over the course of, you know, 20 plus years in broadcasting and talking about my, my past life as a teacher. The reality is that schools usually don't make or break students. Families do. You could be in a poor performing school with poor resources without all of the wonderful whiteboards and they might still use chalkboards and without all of the, you know, the, the, the technological advances. If you've got a kid, 
in a home with two parents who care, who actually watch him do his homework, make him or her do their homework, make sure that they actually go to class, that they don't skip, that they prepare themselves, they will be successful even in a poor school. You've got kids in 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 the best schools in the world when when it comes to uh, resources, money spent, um, um, uh, technology, and so forth. And and if their parents aren't there, and if the parents aren't watching, if the parents aren't careful, if the parents don't give a rip, their kids are going to fail. It doesn't matter. It's not about the school as much as it is about the family. So when I see all of these numbers, is it about uh, the schools? Yes, it is. Is it about the communities? Yes, it is. Is it about the leadership? Yes, it is. But it starts in the home flat fact of the matter is if a mom or dad isn't there making sure things are being buttoned up uh the kids are going to struggle so when we talk about educational homicide it's almost just as much suicide not on the part of the kid but on the part of the family uh chris and i was back i'm told peter are you there i am okay they wait that was a good summary bob and you know what we're doing right now is there is no substitute no amount of government money can make up for the lack of a two-parent home right that is the single biggest determinant of success or failure in life. You can go down the board with respect to the types of outcomes that a child might have. And, you know, there are about eight or nine factors that are completely affected by whether or not that kid is being brought up in a single-parent home or a two-parent home. And until such time as we go back to where we were before with respect to the importance and primacy of the family, I don't care how many billions we throw at these schools, it's going to have a negative outcome. And these these uh, governmental measures that we're taking are actually doing palpable harm, are actually making things worse. For example, as we mentioned at the earlier uh, segment, the influx, this huge influx of illegal aliens that they're going to be taking over space in these schools. The government has an obligation to educate them under Plyer versus Doe. They have to educate every kid, illegal or not. And those resources are going to be diverted. And the kids who are starting off in bad shape to begin with in single-parent homes, that's going to get even worse. No question about it. Bigger picture on education. I wanted to share this with you because you kind of mentioned it in a quip at the end of your last commentary talking about how you, but they know how many pronouns there are. They might not be able to do math, but they can count pronouns and so forth. The wokeness of the schools and so forth. um, I want to talk about the education secretary. Miguel Cardona said last week that he does not respect people who are misbehaving in public and acting like they know what's right for kids. He's talking about the parents, parents who show up at school board meetings, parents who read some of the extraordinarily inappropriate materials that the kids have access to in the schools in front of school board meetings. He calls that misbehaving in public and acting like they know what's right for kids. What does this say when the person who is... I guess, if you want to call it this, in in charge of education in in the United States of America, thinks that the schools know better how to raise your kids than than the parents do. How, how how do we how do we even begin to fix the mess that is the state of education in the United States of America? If that's the mindset from the beginning, that parents need to stay the hell out of it and let us do what we do. Yeah, this is something we could talk about for weeks, months, even years, Bob. I'd like to make a couple points. One is that what you just heard from Cardona, Cardona is that is the essence of the progressive platform of separating kids from parents mm-hmm. and interjecting the state between them, making the state the parent of the kid. The state knows better. The state should, for example, and it just it, uh, well, uh, Gavin Newsom just vetoed because he wants to be president, of course, 
but he otherwise would have signed this, a bill in California that would have required parents to affirm their trans uh, kids' uh, status. I mean, this is stunning stuff. Or in other places where there's been legislation that would remove children from homes because of a failure to affirm trans status or some other type of liberal shibboleth. Um, the idea is parents are not the, the folks who have the primary interest of the kids at heart. It is the state. And as Leonard said, give me a kid for four years and he has them forever. That's all he needs. Four years of teaching and that kid is going to be a good communist forever and ever. Amen. And Cardona, first of all, is incompetent. It's a real challenge to determine which cabinet secretary in the Biden administration is the worst. But Cardona, every single day, tries to take that brass ring. He really does. But what he is, is, you know, I, I don't like throwing casually about the terms communist or things like that, but he's clearly a socialist. And he, he's clearly somebody who has nothing but disdain for the two-parent family. He's articulated it himself. This is not coming from me. It's not my description. Just read his words. I've written to this guy and several cabinet secretaries several times, despite the fact that, you know, they're never even going to read this stuff. They're not even going to, to the extent they read it or their staff tells them about it, they won't care. They have done so much damage to this country the kids in this country, to our border, to the working prospects of black Americans, you, we can go down the line. And we have a, an utterly, utterly corrupt and mendacious media that covers for them at every turn. The Biden administration, by all accounts, any honest historian will have to come to the conclusion that this is the worst presidency of all time. You look at almost every discrete measure over which the administration might even arguably have some impact and everything is down and not by a little by a lot but when we're talking about the future of our kids we're talking about the future of america and they are doing overt harm to kids and we need to get very angry about that you know i'll go back to dirt not dirty harry but um uh you know clint eastwood saying that uh, sometimes uh, you have to get plum, mad dog, mean. We have to get mean. We have to start acting on these things. By mean, I don't mean violence or anything like that. Yeah. But energized, energized, and unyielding in our efforts to make sure that the America that we grew up in pertains. There is nothing that these progressives that, are, that they're doing in terms of tearing down statues of icons, rewriting history, making people think America's the worst. Nobody even wants to join the military anymore. The military has been, been reduced to wokeness also. They are tearing down the essence of the United States of America, and it's incumbent upon each American to punch him in the face metaphorically every single day and say, no mas. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's exactly right. And... Um, the the X factor for me, though, Pete, is that there are so many parents who are just as much to blame as the schools. You know, I, I want parents to have the rights, all of the things that you just said are true, to do what they, you know, to raise their kids how they want to raise their kids and all these other things. But the reality is, because of the twisted nature of the education of parents, not by schools, but by social media and by mainstream media, legacy media and so forth, they're all caught up uh, in, in this, you know, this, this vogue uh, w- attempt to, to turn their kids into little, you know, clout, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is here, but to turn their little kids into uh, little merit badges for how woke they are. And, they're, and, and the, the parents are saying, uh, you know, 
I want my kid to be what I want my kid to be, not what he or she naturally is. The point is, when we give parents the rights, many parents, quite frankly, are unfit. Uh, unfit to raise their kids or incapable of raising their kids or single-parent households. Obviously, it's a, it's a, it's an even tougher task there. So there has to be some kind of a balance between schools and education policymakers and parents where there is cooperation and collaboration and not this enmity that we have where, you know, we say all parents should be able to do whatever they want with their kids and the school should stay out of it versus the side that says parents, well, what did Cardona say? Misbehaving parents, stop acting like you know what's good for kids. Yeah, that's an excellent observation, Bob. I concur entirely. Um, we have, uh, uh, and I um, wrote an article a while back, I can't remember which publication was for me, the National Review, I think it was for the Federalist, that dealt with, among other things, the phenomenon you just mentioned, and that um, also, among other things, that when you look at teachers' colleges, these teachers' colleges are hyper-woke, so the uh, teachers coming out of them, they are foot soldiers for the progressive movement rather than educators. Now, I'm not talking about all teachers, and I'm not talking about especially older teachers, but yeah. uh, those teachers that have gone through these teachers' colleges uh, that have taken the courses in a number of universities across the country, they are being, and I know the left hates the term indoctrination, but it is the most accurate and descriptive use of the term. They are being indoctrinated. Our kids, objectively, manifestly, are not scoring worth anything on any objective exams of actual academic knowledge. But again, they can tell you how many genders there are. They can tell you what color the, rain, you know, the, the, the rainbow flag, what it means, its significance, all over and over and over again, all that stuff. But they can't compete with their peers. As I like to say very often, we are 39th in math worldwide. 39th. And as I like to say also... In the past, when we may have slipped from number one to be number three or four, that meant that you know, first world countries like maybe Great Britain or Germany or Sweden were ahead of us. When you're 39th, that means Sri Lanka, you know, uh, Burundi, and all kinds of places, third world countries like that are ahead of us. This is unforgivable. It's unacceptable. We must reject it and fight back hard. I like to say very often, punch back twice as hard. Do not accept this. And we've got to get plum, mad dog, mean. No question about it, Pete. Let's um, let's shift gears here. We got time for one more topic, probably. Uh, and and you brought this up this to me this morning as we uh, communicate as we do before each show about what we want to talk about. Um, tell me what's going on. I mean, you know, first of all, for those who don't know, our our military is struggling mightily when it comes to recruiting. We're talking about missing recruiting goals in virtually every branch of the service, and it's been that way for the last several cycles, the last few years. Um, most people, well, many people, myself included, blame uh, the wokeness of the military for a lot of people not wanting to be a part of it, not pe- people not wanting to enlist, and individuals who are given the opportunity to get out, getting out at the first uh, opportunity that they can because they do not like the direction of it. Um, the story you're about to share with us, Pete, makes it even worse, I think, um, for anybody who might consider going into the military, considering the way they treat uh, our troops. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, as a preface, Bob, I'll say that I never served, uh, to my chagrin, uh, maybe to my benefit. You know, I, I, I didn't want to get shot or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't serve, but, you know, I was, it's not like I avoided service or anything like that. I just, you know, I never signed up. But uh, tons of my family members did, and I have nothing but respect for everybody who served and all the folks in your audience that come up to me all the time, the folks that I know in Washington, D.C., great folks. And these people have decided to put their lives on the line for the United States of America. There is no better calling than something like that, and these people should be honored. Yet, 
recently there have been numerous reports about the appalling conditions that they are subject to in um, at various camps throughout the country. And, for example, um, there are increasing number of reports about the uh, dorms of, of the barracks that um, our troops are staying in that are mold-infested, rat-infested, that, in fact, in some places, there are even squatters because they are not being kept up. The security around the perimeter of these installations is atrocious. Can you imagine squatters in a military barracks? Um, it is at a point where they are both a safety hazard and a health hazard, and we are subjecting our troops to this at the same time we're sending nearly $100 billion to Ukraine, or we will have by the end of this year. We're, and I'm not we're, saying well, we're, that... Yeah, we're, we're at $113 billion, by the way, we've already sent. Now now they want another $25 billion. Uh, yeah, billion here, so. billion there. You know, yeah. what, what, so what? We, we've got uh, limitless, we got bottomless pit for a wallet, according to Biden, apparently. But... Well, the bottomless pit looks like some of the restroom facilities here in the barracks that you're talking about. These pictures are unbelievable. I'm staring at them right now. It is atrocious what they're making our men and, our men and women who are serving, uh, uh, you know, live through. Yeah, and then we're going to, you know, ship them off and possibly send them to Ukraine or some anywhere, wherever. These troops are being subjected to appalling substandard conditions, and nothing's being done about it. And General Milley thinks the greatest threat to our military is... What? White supremacy. Yeah. I got news for Millie. Maybe you want me want to take a tour of some of the barracks that his troops are staying in. We have our leadership, and a number of people have made the point that our leadership, not just in the military, but almost every institution, is appallingly bad and has been for the last maybe half generation or so. It is horrific the kind of neglect, the kind of idiocy, the kind of incompetency we have across the board. Now, this is not to say we don't have extraordinary and fine people throughout, and we do. I've met some of them. But when you're talking about a Millie, when you're talking about an Austin, you're talking about the fact, the facts on the ground of these appalling, dangerous conditions in our barracks, there's no excuse for that, none whatsoever. And again, we have to get plum, mad dog, mean. We shouldn't be tolerating this. You know, Pete, I uh, we, we talk about this every time there is one of these uh, military stories, um, and we talk about how the Chinese are probably licking their chops, uh, and maybe the Russians too, although they're engaged in their own uh, issue right now with Ukraine. I shouldn't phrase it that way. They invaded Ukraine, uh, and they're 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 involved in a, in a in a protracted war there now. But the point is that America's enemies that used to fear the mighty military machine, the greatest military in the world, the you know the the, the most powerful uh, fighting force that that humankind has ever seen. They used to fear it. It used to make them very very uh, careful and cautious before they did anything. They would unleash the American beast. I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, am, am I overstating it to say that they are just biding their time and watching us get weaker and weaker and weaker militarily based on our our our, our, our number of ships, our, our actual supplies? You know, we're running out of munitions, for crying out loud. We left $85 billion worth of stuff in Afghanistan. Given all of that, along with the attitude and the treatment of our military, they're watching this very closely. Uh, they know what's going on. Is it just a matter of time? Yeah, I think that's dangerous. You know, I, I said on your show a couple of years ago, that uh, this is before Biden was elected, I thought that the Chinese probably believe that if Biden gets elected, they have a four-year window in order to accomplish most of their aims, including attacking Taiwan. 
Uh, it looks the the odds of them attacking Taiwan look like they're diminishing, but that's because they may not need to have to attack Taiwan. They may be able to accomplish their objectives without doing something militarily because we are diminishing ourselves so much that they are taking over so much. They are becoming the hegemon of the world now, whether it's in South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. And they're at a point where they can almost strangle us into submission without firing a shot. It's extraordinary. When you have, again, going back to Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying forthrightly that he would warn the Chinese if we're about to attack. I mean, think about that. Pause for a second. I know we've talked about this before, but it's extraordinary. We just kind of, the media and everyone else just kind of passed over that statement as if, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, but it's no big deal. That, that is extraordinary. I'm not, I don't want to use the T word, uh, treason or traitor, but call our principal adversary, I would say enemy, they consider us the enemy at least, because they're a little bit more, uh, I think, clear-eyed about the, the situation. But we, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that if Trump, for example, was thinking about potentially attacking China or taking some kind of military action, he would warn China ahead of time. Now, I know Trump derangement syndrome is such that if Trump decided to clip his toenails and somebody decided to hack off his foot because that would cause, uh, prevent you know, the toenails from spreading across the, the floor or something, that that would be a good thing. But under, think about it. Okay, take your favorite president, if you're over there on the left right now listening. I can't imagine somebody is. But take your favorite president. Let's say it was a president, Hillary Clinton, or his, his saintliness, Barack Obama. And you had a chairman of the Joint Chiefs say that if Obama wanted to do something, he'd call our adversary and warn them we're going to do it. My goodness, this is extraordinary. Where, how far have we fallen in this country? Our standards have fallen so much that we have a Neanderthal in the Senate dressed like he's going to a basketball pickup game. We can't tolerate this anymore. I'm sorry for being histrionic about this, but this is, this You're is, not. This is appalling. I spent a great deal of time on the Prager Show yesterday talking about that. I don't think it's histrionics at all. I think that matters. The lowering lowering of the standards that we have all across our society, particularly in leadership positions, you mentioned Fetterman, um, it, it all comes together. It all adds up to one great big, you know, uh, what looks like a, a, a country that's ripe for the picking. For, for the right enemy at the right time, uh, this country could very well be in, in grave danger. Uh, and, and when I say right at the right time for them, obviously it would be the wrong time for us because we are putting ourselves in this position. We have lowered our standards in the military. We have lowered our standards in government. You know, I mean, the fact, Pete, I read a, a, a Substack article by a, a former uh, Senate page who talked about what they have to wear, and they still have to wear. The Senate page uniforms are unbelievably... Uh, um, uh, stringent in terms of the requirements, what they have to wear. And I mean buttoned up to the neck every time. And if you happen to have long hair, it's got to be up tight in a bun or whatever the case might be. All of the Senate pages have specific uh, attire, and yet the senators themselves can come in looking like uh, like uh, John Fetterman does, like he just yeah. you know walked in uh, uh, you know out, out of a out of a out of a garage uh, where he was working on a car. It, it, it's it's unbelievable. And by the way, Pete, you or I, if we visit the United States Senate, visitors still have to follow a very strict dress code, but the actual senators don't have to. And again, people might think this is minor and what's the big deal? It is a big deal because it's emblematic of the lowering of the standards of the country. Yeah, across the board, in every single endeavor, lowering of the standards. And at another time, Bob, we'll talk about one of the reasons for doing so. And it's not, you know, some type of conspiracy theory. It's overt. They're saying it now in the open because they think they're on the verge of winning. You're exactly right. Let's talk about that next week, Peter Kersenow. Pete, thanks very much, my friend. I appreciate you. 
Thanks, Bob. Ten fifty-six. We'll take a timeout. We've got uh, we've got a lot more coming up for you. I want to talk to you about the UAW strike. I want to talk to you where you stand about where you stand on that. Uh, but we are also going to talk to Bill O'Reilly coming up after the top of the hour. Bill O has uh, got a new book out. He's still killing, literally by way of book sales in the Killing series. We'll talk to him coming up. Always Right Radio AM. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Friends on AM 1420, The Answer. Alrighty then, into hour number three, we roll on this Tuesday, the 26th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks again to Peter Kersenow, joined us last hour. Thanks again to the superintendent of Brooklyn Schools, joined us in the first hour. If you want to respond to any of those things, we'll get to you as soon as we can, but... We want to spend some time now talking about killing. And no, I'm not talking about what Biden is doing to the American economy. I'm talking about the killing series by the most, uh, one of the most successful nonfiction writers of all time. Bill O'Reilly has 18 number one ranked nonfiction books, including the historic killing series. It's, uh, it's a best selling nonfiction series literally of all time. Over 19 million books in print. Uh, Bill, of course, is still doing his no spin news broadcast every weeknight, uh, 8 and 11 p.m. And, of course, he hosts the O'Reilly Update, which you hear right after this show each and every day. And Bill O'Reilly joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer, to talk about more killing. Bill, good to have you back here in Cleveland. How are you? Good, Bob. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thanks so much for for coming back on. And now we're killing the witches. Killing the witches. Telling the tale of the, the real story of the Salem witch trials. You know, Bill... I still know people that if you ask them about the Salem witch trials, they think it's literature. They think it's something that was, you know, that it's made up, that it didn't actually happen, that the Salem yeah. witch trials we know of. You know, I mean, I, I think that's, it says something a little bit about our lack of teaching accurate history anymore, but, uh, but this is very much uh, a, a dark part in American history. Yeah, we're reliving it now with the witch hunts going on, with the cancel culture and all that stuff. Well said. So it's back. And Killing the Witches is the 13th killing book and if you read them all bob and i think you've seen them all uh you know about your country start to finish and that's why i selected this topic because i put you on the mayflower um where the puritans were literally booted out of england and they go on this little boat 66 days and they land at cape cod and then go on to the mainland of massachusetts um, just the voyage alone is worth the price of the book. I mean, because people have no idea. No, they don't. What these what these uh, hundred people went through to get here, 
Um, and then when they arrived, uh, most of them were religious zealots, and they started to fight among themselves. And a portion of them broke off and moved up to Salem. There was no Boston at the time. And then they went absolutely out of their minds up there by accusing people of uh, being in the league with the devil. That's what a witch is. As a witch is a being in the league with the devil. So that's the first third of the book. And then we get into Benjamin Franklin, who was a teenager in Boston and watched all this witch stuff, researched a brilliant genius, even when he was a kid. And he brought all that to Philadelphia, and that's why we have our religion in the Constitution, because it was a brawl between those who wanted a theocracy like Patrick Henry and those who wanted a secular nation like Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. And we take you there, and then we take you to modern times, um, where we have political witch hunts now in America that dominate because the media drives that. And um, we have real cases of demon possession, uh, particularly on the movie The Exorcist. Remember that movie made in sure. the 70s? Sure. Well, what yes. happened on the set of that movie? When we got all the documentation of it, oh my God! And I, I'm using that, pardon the pun, but <laughs> I, when you read what happened on the set of that movie, um, and it, so the bottom line on killing the witches, the horror of Salem, Massachusetts, is, is it is a history book, but it pertains to today as well. Yeah, and and I love when you do that when you are able to make it relatable to today and 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 a great job of even that short summary. But let's go into a little bit more detail, um, and particularly on the Mayflower part of this too, because not a lot of people realize exactly how unbelievably torturous that existence was for that period of time, and how many people died, and how many who did survive came close to or beyond madness from the conditions that they were in. Well, they got here um, pretty good shape, but they suffered dramatically on the ship. Mm -hmm. You actually couldn't go up on deck, so you had to stay under this, uh, uh, in this very confined space, and we, we put you there, so you're on the voyage. Um, about half of the original, and we call them pilgrims, but that word pilgrim didn't come until decades after. Um, they were Puritans. And about half of them survived uh, the experience of coming to the New World. But if not for the Native Americans, they would have all died. And it was so intense, uh, just their survival day to day. And then you add in the crazy uh, theology that they had. I mean, these people were in church for three, four hours at a time, and there was, you know, all of this insanity um, that literally drove people nuts. And that's why they began hanging um, innocent people. Did you know, this, this stunned me, two dogs were executed as being witches. I did dogs. not know that. I did not know that. Well, well, I mean, if you believe in if you believe right. in demonic possession, which yeah, of course yeah. is what they thought wishes were, if a demon can enter a human, why can't it enter an animal? And well, and right, it, yeah, and and you know, girls are turning with turning as their parents, and oh my god, and of course, there's no due process at all. It's insane, but um, it's a rollicking adventure. Halloween coming up, and a better book in the world. And with apologies to Edgar Allan Poe, because this is all true. <laughs> Um, what happened. And, and Americans, unfortunately, they don't really know about the origins of their country. But when we're reliving these witch hunts as we are today, I felt it was important to get this book out. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. And um, one of the things that I find fascinating, and I don't know if a lot of people really understand about the, the, the witch trials, the Salem you know, witch trials, is this, this wasn't very long. This wasn't a long period of time. It was just a couple of years, yes, 1692 years. and 1693. And, right. and you know, uh, over 200 people were accused. But to hear history or... You know, mythological history, as people tell it, scores of people were hung for being witches, but the reality is only 20 were actually executed. Some died in jail and, and their lives were destroyed and they were, you know, they were outcasts and so forth, but actually only 20, I say that, you know, uh, you know, uh, proportionally, but only 20 people are actually executed during that period of time. Don't you find or have you found that, that people have maybe misunderstood exactly how broad the, the scale of the Salem witch trials were? Yeah, they don't know. I mean, it was 20 in the Salem area, but then there were uh, more in Connecticut, which was way out of control. Um, and they were um, hanging people there like crazy. And, and a few others in other parts of the colonies um, were executed as well. But when you have a small town, and it was small, a couple of thousand people in uh, northern Massachusetts, the Salem area, and you've got 200 people in jail? awaiting execution. The only reason that it stopped was because the nutty um, court, which were all ministers, um, accused the governor's wife of being a witch, Mary Phipps. And then the governor was off fighting the Abenaki Indians in Maine, and he comes back, and his wife's under arrest. And that was the only reason it stopped, because, you know, he went ballistic. Um, but it was a very intense, um, and here's something very interesting. So when we went to try to get information from the Salem people today, the mayor's office and things like that, they wouldn't talk to us. Really? Yeah, because they're making millions and millions of dollars selling Salem as which city. If you go there, the big sign, which city and, you know, they're selling all kinds of potions and witch stuff and there's witch seances and all of that. So they're all having a merry old time based on 20 executions. And there's a kind of an unsettling part to this. And I'll tell you something interesting, um, and people in Ohio and Cleveland don't know this, but last night I did, I sat for an interview with Tucker Carlson in Manhattan which is going to be uh, dropped on X Twitter, whatever that is, on uh, tomorrow night at 9 p.m. And the book, obviously, is a centerpiece of the, of the chat. And what caught Carlson's attention was the demonic possession today, um, the literal demonic possession today, because we have, that's the last part of the book. And um, so it's interesting, and people will read it, and they will pick out things that stay with them. But the town of Salem, um, they, I don't think they're going to be a real big supporter of this book. Well, I, no, I would imagine not, especially if they're making so much money off of the mythology yeah. of the whole thing uh, as they are. We're talking to Bill O'Reilly. Uh, his latest is Killing the Witches. It is available now. Uh, it is number 13 in the Killing series. It will add to the over 19 million books that he has uh, sold that have been in print. It's uh, simply incredible. So you, you bring up, 
you know, bringing this to modern day witch hunts and the cancel culture and so on and so forth. What are the, what are the similarities, Bill? Um, because, uh, you know, in, in that time, it was just two young girls who, who were kind of having fits that, oh, they must be, they must be witches. And now it's much more, it's much more, it appears anyway, to be much more uh, devised, much more planned. In other words, people are identified because of what they think, not because of how they act or anything that is, uh, you know, that is, uh, that is you know, unseemly or, or, or out of the ordinary. People are targeted now for the, you know, for the, uh, the as, 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 you know, metaphorical witches, the people that need to be excised and ostracized from society. This is much more planned than it was uh, when we're talking about the Salem witch trials. But what it has in common is, is it's used as a weapon. So these young girls in Salem who started the hysteria, they didn't like certain people in town. And they branded them witches. So it was a grudge. And today, the cancel culture doesn't like certain people in the public arena, and they want to destroy them. So they brand them whatever. Whatever. And, and the media, of course... Only interested in the accusation, not interested in any reality or doing any work to find out what's valid and what isn't valid. Well, it's because they share the the grudge. The media shares the grudge with those doing the finger pointing. You don't see a lot of cancel culture directed at the left unless there's a heinous crime that is, you know, obviously provable. It's we can eliminate people from the public arena by accusing them. I mean, CNN did it to me on Friday. Just this Friday, um, four days ago, um, they ran a montage off Rupert Murdoch resigning um, as chairman of Fox News uh, about how racist Fox News is and always has been. They used a clip of mine, an eight-second clip, where I was explaining that slaves were well-fed and housed. Well, you know what that clip was about? It was about Michelle Obama's lecture that slaves built the White House. But they cut all of that out and just had me saying slaves were well-fed and housed Mm -hmm. to imply that I was a racist. This is CNN did this. Well, it's no different so, than what they were doing in Florida to the you know the new education you know on on, on oh, uh, sure. African American sure. history and slavery. So they weaponize accusations, just as the girls did in Salem, to get rid of people. I mean, it's just unbelievable, and that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book. Well, and, what and makes, we get into that at the end of the book. Yeah, what makes the modern-day you know witch hunts that we're talking about here so much worse is we are already far past the two years or so that this held sway in in Salem. You know, I, in fact, my 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 most important issue that I have here is: is there ever going to be anything that turns this back? I feel like there is, we have crossed a Rubicon now where there is going to be no way for those who are accused and branded a racist, a phobe of some sort, or, or an ist of some sort. There's no coming back from it because of social media and what they say is the Internet lives forever. So accusations live forever. It doesn't matter if they're provable or not. And, Bill, I'm wondering, do you think we'll ever be able to, to turn back to some sense of normalcy uh, in our discourse? Not completely. However, history goes in arcs in America, and the progressive power has reached its zenith now. All right? Because Biden is the most progressive president in the history of this country, and he's a, he's a puppet. 
progressives pretty much tell him what to do, and he does it. Open border, best example of that. Um, but there is a backlash in motion. And once the progressives get beaten at the ballot box, and it's never going to happen in places like California or New York where I am, but in most states it will, then this kind of stuff will subside a bit. But it's not going to disappear. Where because do you see the, the backlash is, coming from? You said the what backlash was that? is. You said there is a backlash in motion. Yeah, it's coming Where from the folks. That? The folks know. The folks know this is wrong, Bob. Not just your listeners and my listeners, but most Americans know there's something very wrong here. And you know the corporate media is so corrupt. I mean, look look at Disney. Look at the beating Disney stock has taken in the last 12 months. People know. And so that's where the backlash is coming from. Yeah, I want to be more optimistic about that than I am. And the reason why is because it's not just the traditional legacy media. It is social media. And the folks make up part of the social media. Now, not the good folks, but the ones that want to demonize and point the finger, you know, again, as our in our metaphorical witch hunt here, um, they hold a lot of sway. They have a lot of influence, even maybe more so than the traditional uh, um uh, media does and uh if if they want to take somebody apart again you know it's it's kind of like it's kind of like what happened with me too you know me too got so out of control albeit for a shorter period of time that they were able to declare brett kavanaugh not just somebody who raped somebody as a teenager as a college student but somebody who ran regular weekend rape rings and did it over and over and over again and that stuff bill that I mean, he still is viewed, even though they've they've stopped the you know the protest. He still is viewed as that. That'll never erase. He'll never lose that stigma and that stain that they put on him because of social media and the influence that it has. That's what I worry about. It, the intensity of it is ebbing a bit, um, but you're absolutely right in your description, and Kavanaugh is a very good example of it. Um, of the hateful, and some say demonic, aspect of trying to destroy human beings based on nothing. I mean, killing the witches, you'll see, there wasn't a shred of evidence against any of these people. And they were hung from a tree. And, you know, but it did snap back. And I think it will in America, too, not to the extent that we'd all like it to, because there will be that social media component, mm-hmm. which is very difficult to control. There's a lot of anger on, in the traditional precincts, Bob. A lot of people have had it. And that's why you're seeing the decline of ratings uh, on television news, and you're seeing Bud Light get evaporated. Um, there's anger. Yeah, there is, and uh, and you use you use the word demonic, and it's so accurate, obviously, considering the book "Killing the Witches." But you know, there they accused people of being demonic and being witches, and now it is literally demonic people. The demons are the ones pointing the fingers at innocent people because they don't like them, because they have a different ideology and a different viewpoint. So the you know the the, the demonization is real. Bill O'Reilly's latest is called "Killing the Witches: The Horror of Salem, Massachusetts," number thirteen. 
seen in the Killing Series. Uh, he continues with his no-spin news. Don't forget to catch that 8 and 11 every night on First TV. And the O'Reilly update you're going to hear in about 24 minutes, well, actually about 19 minutes now, uh, right here on AM 1420, The Answer, following this show. Uh, Bill, always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for the book. Thank you so much for the great work. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Listen, Bob, always a pleasure to talk with you. Anytime you need me, just give me a toot. We will do exactly that. Thank you, Bill. That's Bill O. Uh, I can't wait to see his conversation with Tucker. Bill dominated the cable ratings for 16 years in that 8 o'clock spot on Fox News. Tucker dominated it for about 6 or 7, even actually exceeding Bill O'Reilly's numbers. So the two of those guys having a conversation, that ought to be fun on Tucker's Twitter. Uh, 1127, we'll take a time out and come right back. We'll see if we can squeeze some calls in here before we're done on Always Right Radio. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, we've had a full day of interviews. Very, very little time for calls. Let's go ahead and get a few phone calls in now. Uh, 216-901-0945 Let's go to Robert calling us from Solon first. Robert, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Fire away. Hey, Bob. Nice to talk to you. Nice to uh, talk to I you, Robert. I listened to your, most of your interview, but not all of it, with the superintendent of the Brooklyn School. Yeah. Uh, the organization I'm involved with, this is exactly what we do. We teach Holocaust education, and well, what, what, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Robert. What is your organization? The name, the name of the organization is the Cold Israel Foundation. It was founded in 1959 by a group of Holocaust survivors, people that had survived the Holocaust, including my parents, who uh, formed this organization. That's just like a social club to begin with. But in the last number of years, we're all about education. We educate thousands of kids, primarily. Uh, non-Jewish kids. I said probably well over ninety percent of the kids we we educate are, uh, are non-Jewish kids. We have a what we call a face-to-face program. That is a great. That is a great mission to have. That's awesome. I'm sorry. And continue. that's all we're all about is educating about the Holocaust, because states like Ohio do not mandate ho- mandate Holocaust education. And after hearing what you were saying, you know the word Nazi has been taboo basically since probably 1939. It doesn't have any positive connotation. So I kind of disagree with you when you said, well, you know, he's been using this. He could have picked any other word except maybe Omaha. Can you imagine if Peyton Manning uh, would have been audible uh, and, and said Nazi instead of Omaha? I mean, what, what, what would that have created? And I kind of well, it would it would have been it would have been the wrong thing to do, which is what it was right. with this coach. It was clearly the wrong right. thing to do, and that's why right. the right thing to do was was what was done. He resigned, right. uh, and he, and he is no longer in that position. But but I but I what I, the the reason I had that the superintendent on too though, uh, Robert is is because. I don't think it's fair to lump or 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 group or 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 you know huddle everybody up together who is associated with a school or a team or a program or whatever, and including the kids who didn't know any better, you know, because of because they were doing what they were coached to do, and that is to hey, there's the blitz, that's the Nazi call, call Nazi Nazi. It was a terrible decision by the adult in charge of them, which is why he needed to go. But I hope. Uh, that for the sake of you know the rest of those kids who are innocent uh, you know uh, in in this entire thing that, that that there's no blowback on them. Yeah, and that's exactly my point. The lack of education, yes. ignorance, and it all starts at home. It all starts at home. And people, and most of the people in this country don't don't want to address that issue. Everything starts at home. How you're how you're taught your your morals and everything else. It starts at home. 
Yes. If you hear bad words at home, or if you hear your, your parents saying things that are negative towards other races and religions, that's that, that as an influence as, as, uh, on a young child. And it all starts at home, and I would have thought that maybe some of the kids would have said, you know, Coach, this isn't the right word. But apparently, maybe, I don't know if they did or didn't. I don't know how long he's used it for. But if, he, if it was just used... It's just the wrong word. It's, uh, it's just yeah, so and, wrong and especially especially right now because you know the thing is it, it's not a taboo word. For example, like the N word is where it can't be talked about because it is talked about in the context of, for example, the actual Nazis from from World War II era and the Third Reich to neo Nazis today. We talk about neo Nazis all the time. It's not like it's a word that is not said or discussed in, in, in everyday language, because it is. And so that's probably why the kids didn't think too much of that's the word, because it's not, it's not as forbidden or as, as, as um, uh, you know, obviously as, as uh, 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 serious, I guess, if you will, as the N-word. Nobody would ever call that as a, as a line call on a football team, but, because nobody uses that word in any context unless it's in rap music. Um, but, but, uh, but I think that's the difference here is it, it's, not, it's not quite as taboo as, for example, the N-word, and that's why those kids probably didn't think anything more of it. It looks like he dropped his call. So, so Robert, I hope that made sense. Um, you know, the kids probably know what a Nazi is. They probably know about World War II. They may have been taught some element of it in world history or in American history classes. Maybe not enough information on the Holocaust as a whole. But the kids probably know what a Nazi is. But they also know that the word is used in conversation and discussion and in the news and on TV on a fairly regular basis, which is why it might not have caught them the way that uh, maybe it should have. The coach absolutely should have known better. Totally agree with you on that one. Uh, let's go to uh, TJ in Cleveland. Hi, TJ. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Bob. I want to respond to that union representative yesterday. Sure. Now, first, I want to say they have the right to demand anything they want. I understand that. That's their right. But he wasn't quite accurate. When he talked about the average wage of $32 an hour, Yes. now, if that's an average, that means there's a lot of workers making more than $32 an hour. Exactly. He did Right. He didn't bring up their benefit package, which is substantial. Hospitalization, uh, paid vacation, that greatly increases your average wage. And then the one that really bugged me with uh, when he talked about they bailed the company out. They bailed themselves out because if the company would have went bankrupt, they wouldn't have had a job. Now, who bailed the company out was us taxpayers. And what did we get for our buck? Greatly increased prices in the showroom. Yes. So all I got. To I, say I think. Is, I think the one thing I would say, though, um, where I will defend him when he said that is they did take concessions in order to make you know everything work. You're right about the taxpayers. We did, but they took concessions for a while uh, in order to in order to make everybody or to to you know get get everything you know back to productivity. Now they again, which I believe is they the concessions that they took were. Uh, reverse. They were made whole over the course of the course of the last 14 years. I don't think they're claiming that they didn't get anything back that they gave up, but they did have to give up in the short term. So when they say they bailed it out, I give them I give them a break on that. Well, that's true, and I mean all of us. If you worked long enough in the working world, you've taken concessions to help your company. Yeah. You know when it was not doing well. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I just want to say is that they can ask and demand anything they want. I don't care. I'll go buy a Honda. And, and, <laughs> Yeah, and one other thing with Bill O'Reilly, that's not fiction. There are witches. We've got Hillary Clinton. 
<laughs> Nancy Pelosi. I mean, they're, these Thank are real. You. They're not fictional characters. Thank you, TJ. Appreciate okay. the call, brother. Uh, let's go to Joanne in Twinsburg. Joanne, go ahead. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. My thing is, is when you were talking to the superintendent in Brooklyn, yes. you know, and he was talking about how the kids might not get the sensitivity of it all and all this other stuff. You know, and I was kind of appalled going, these kids haven't learned about this in school. But then I realized that, you know what, the Canadian Parliament hasn't either. Exactly, <laughs> they right? Nazi is either. They did you a know. standing ovation for